Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com forward slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today we're talking energy and industrials. It is uh, Thursday, the 8th of March, and we're going to be discussing all kinds of things in the news in energy and industrials. Uh, I'm your host, Sarah Priestley, and joining me in the studio is the marvelous Motley Fool Canada right. premium analyst. <laughs> Taylor, did you like that introduction? Yeah, marvelously Taylor? premium. <laughs> um, so are you into March Madness because it's taking over my household? It actually caught up with me. I had really no idea. Uh-huh. I, I was... Um, I saw some of the ACC tournament on TV upstairs yesterday in the full in the full cafe, but I got to get my game back. Yeah, we live in uh, we work at a nice place that allows us to yeah. play the games. <laughs> my husband, who is super super into it, mm-hmm. uh, he's a UNC uh, Tar Heels fan. Okay, um, does not have the pleasure, so I think he has to surreptitiously look on his phone. Yeah, but. well, they have. Um, I think some of the. Uh, at least during March Madness, a lot of the networks have the the boss button where mm-hmm. you can click it in and it'll switch windows real quick for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so first thing I wanted to touch on was we got a great listener question from Brendan um, around the likelihood of the Baker-Schultz carbon tax. If you don't know what that is, you are not alone. I will, yeah, no, I, was, I will go into uh, it. I'm very much in that boat. Um, so the Baker-Schultz carbon tax was uh, devised by the Climate Leadership Council and released in February 2017. Uh, it was created by a group of Republicans headed by Reagan Secretary of State George Shultz and George W. Bush Secretary of State James Baker. Uh, it's called the Conservative Case for Carbon Dividends, and you can read it online. Uh, the proposal aims to tax CO2 emissions from the use of fossil fuels at a rate of $40 per ton. A crucial aspect of this proposal is that it would return the revenues from this uh, in shares, uh, in dividends, to Americans, every American, mm-hmm. child, adult. Um So I'm paraphrasing the report, but it says these dividends would be distributed on an equal monthly basis via dividend checks or as contributions to an individual's retirement account. They give an example in which a family of four would receive $2,000 in carbon dividend payments the first year, and that would grow over time as the carbon tax rate increases. This is a direct quote. They say this would create a positive feedback loop. The more the climate is protected, the greater the individual dividend payments to all Americans. So that's, that's the premise of this. Um, so that was a very, very high-level overview. <laughs> um, if you want to learn more about it, just Google ba- uh, Baker Schultz Carbon Tax or shoot me an email and I can send it to you, uh, industryfocus at fool.com. I find it really hard to say Baker Schultz without saying Baker Hughes. Yeah, I know. We're so, so used to that. <laughs> so used to saying. We might talk about that later in the show. Yeah. Um, so Brendan's question was, how likely is it to come into effect? Well, it seems very unlikely. Uh, for the next few years, I talked to Eugene Malera, who was on the show last week. Uh, he's the Capitol Hill reporter for Transport Topics. He said the proposal barely reached discussion level uh, so far, which is unsurprising. It's pretty new. Yeah. Uh, it's only released last year. Um, so it's not part of the president's tax overhaul. So although there's an outside chance it could be brought into the reform debate, it doesn't look likely at the minute. Um, but it takes a long time to kind of communicate these things and educate people on what it would actually mean mm-hmm. before these things even get put forward. Um However, it does have some ground-level support with what you might term the next generation of politicians, which is terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, well, that seems like that's probably a pretty small subset of overall uh, politicians on Capitol Hill. Yeah, so, um, Brendan, in answer to your question, and thank you very much for sending it in, it seems quite unlikely the next few years, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. 
Uh, thank you, as always, for people writing into the show. We always appreciate hearing mm-hmm. from our listeners. Uh, so, Taylor, after that boring soliloquy. No, I was excited. <laughs> I was pretty interested. Like, uh, like I said, didn't know too much about it. But, yeah, I think it's probably going to take a, a change in the administration or at least a rollover on Capitol Hill before anything dramatic happens in terms of uh, environmental protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very interesting proposal. Yep. Um, I think that it's more academic at this point. Sure. And I always love reading stuff like that. Um, but yes, remains a proposal. Uh-huh. Um, so another interesting report, the International Energy Agency, IEA, has forecast that the US will dominate the oil industry for the next five years and it will become the world's largest oil exporter. That's quite the turnaround from yeah. being the world's largest importer at one point. Yep. Um, Much to OPEC's uh, demise. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it anticipates the states will be able to export 5 million barrels a day around the world by 2023. Mm-hmm. We currently export 2 million barrels a day. Uh, this probably didn't come as much of a surprise to you, did it, Taylor? Yeah, no, this has been underway for a few years now, and uh, it's the reason why prices of oil collapsed down in the $30 range and are now kind of oscillating in the 50 to $60 range over the last few months. And... Uh, yeah, that's pretty astounding. We first time we've produced over 10 million barrels per day in over 40 years, looking at um, 11 million barrels per day next year. And then as you alluded to, uh, 17 million barrels per day uh, by 2023. So overtaking Saudi Arabia, Russia, um, and really, really putting putting the screws to OPEC and mm-hmm. those, those countries that have said they're going to continue to cut production for at least the rest of the year. Um, but if they do decide to bring production back online, what's that going to do to prices? You can imagine that the U.S. producers are, are still going to want to keep the pedal to the metal as they have. Um, although, when you think about out a few more years as spending on capital expenditures really uh, kind of fell off the same cliff that oil prices did in the last few years, People are expecting some kind of a shortfall in in the next five years because these long tail projects do take multiple years to bring online. We're talking um, big unconventional oil fields and offshore oil that has kind of just lost everyone's attention. Um, mm-hmm. And so shale has very steep decline curves. You're looking at needing to replace. Uh, I think they they say um, roughly about three million barrels per day of oil each year are lost. So you have to replace that. And um, if Spending hasn't been following suit. Uh, maybe OPEC will finally um, have some salvation mm-hmm. if if that oil supply isn't there. Maybe maybe holding back will be the smart play in the long run. Absolutely. And so you obviously mentioned this historically low investment that was mm-hmm. raised in the report. Um, OPEC Secretary General Mohamed Bakindo, hopefully I pronounced that right, also mirrored these concerns. Mm-hmm. Says investments have fallen by twenty five percent in both twenty fifteen, oh, wow, yeah. twenty sixteen. Uh, haven't seen twenty seventeen figures mm-hmm. yet. Um, I'm sure a little bit came back, but yeah, yes. over the, for the most part, it's still down. Yeah, and you you've talked about you've mentioned this. It matches up with a period where you know we had oil at over a hundred dollars dollars a barrel <laughs> in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, and they fell to below thirty dollars at one point in 2016. Yeah. Um, so it is a concern, like you said. You this isn't something that you can just switch on. It's a lot of infrastructure that you have to build, yeah. testing, permitting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, and like you mentioned, uh, we we're at one point a very large importer. We're down to just four million barrels per day of importation. Uh, we were at twelve and a half million barrels per day in two thousand five. So cut that in a third by just uh, thirteen years, which is pretty impressive. And um, kind of ironic that uh, when you talk about our exports with all this tariff talk going on that China is actually the largest importer of mm-hmm. U.S. oil. Um, 
So kind of interesting to see that dynamic play out. Yeah, I think uh, so. Over the next five years, demand is supposed to increase by 7%. Mm-hmm. Half of that is meant to come from China. Yes. And obviously some of that is the burgeoning middle class. So you've got a mm-hmm. lot of people wanting plastics and chemicals yep. to make the stuff that you want when you're in the middle For class. For sure. Um, and then some of that is also, they bought a lot of refining capability online. Uh, is that right? So they're importing a lot more crude? Yeah, so they can you know, obviously distill that and make the you know, fuels and the, the petrochemicals fractionate all that out into, into the ability to make, like you said, plastics and pretty much everything you touch on a daily basis mm-hmm. outside of anything that says organic on it. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I guess it's technically organic because it came out of the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting. And uh, the LNG export trade that we're yes. getting into in the United States with facilities, additional facilities expected to come online this year and and over the next several years, in addition to the Chenier Energy Sabine Pass that's already been exporting LNG for some time now. And you've already mentioned what has kind of sparked all of this, uh, which is shale. Yeah. Um, for anybody listening that doesn't know what shale is, could you just explain the difference between that and conventional uh, yeah. extraction? Um, very briefly, we can go into that. It's uh, basically so conventional oil is you, you find these huge basins that are in the ground, and um, you basically just have to tap it, and the oil is naturally pressurized. And uh, because it's a large basin, you, you don't need to open up any fissures. It's just basically a pool of oil down there, whereas shale is uh, oil that's more or less trapped in layers of, of rock and shale and sediment over time. And so you're drilling down through all these layers. And in total, there's a lot of oil down there, but it's not as easy to access as just basically sticking a straw on the ground. So they'll drill down and then um, basically they'll send a canister down. It's much more technical than this, but there's, they send a canister down into the ground filled with propens, and uh, it, they'll explode. It basically light diffuse, it explodes, sends fissures through the shale, and then they flood it with water, uh, different chemicals, and sand to, a, a, add pressure, and the sand will then keep the fissures open, allowing basically a maze-like structure for oil to flow out of um the singular hole being the well. Um, and so they're able to do that drilling down um, several miles and horizontally several miles. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that's all increased over time and therefore giving us access to more oil and natural gas um, that was once thought to be unattainable. Even still, we're leaving more than 50% of that in the ground. So the, the, the pipe dream there, uh, no pun intended, is to uh, <laughs> be able to extract more of that. And they're slowly doing that over time. But because um, of the the nature of it, the decline curve is so much steeper than conventional oil. So you lose, like the initial spurt is, in, is insane, but you lose um, a lot of that daily production over just the first few months and certainly the first year. So mm-hmm. it's hard. It's a much faster replacement cycle with shale versus the conventional oil that you're seeing offshore and that you're seeing in the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's definitely a consideration like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. With they, these don't have the life cycle that right. we're, we're used to. Um, but yeah, this really revolutionized the industry. And what kind of furthered that is the ongoing efficiency. So that lower uh, cost per barrel mm-hmm. or lower price per barrel has led to people really concentrating on lowering the cost per barrel. Yes. Um, and that kind of enforced discipline on, yeah, on the did. industry. So like originally it was just a huge land grab. Everyone went out and spent a ton of money. Like they tried to do it secretly, um, acquiring land rights at the courts without trying to draw a bunch of attention. Um, but quickly people caught on to the best basins. And you've kind of seen 
uh, energy companies and, and high production numbers like kind of leapfrog from basin to basin to basin. Um, Marcellus and Utica in West Virginia, Pennsylvania and Ohio, very prolific for natural gas, still very prolific for natural gas. That really hasn't changed. But uh, at one point you were hearing a lot about the Bakken up in North Dakota um, with Continental Resources and Harold Ham, And then everyone was all in on the Eagle Ford. And now everyone's all in on the Permian. So um, you're extracting the low-hanging fruit. Um, and and when, once that starts to run dry, you start to worry about low oil prices kind of uh, preventing people from making money on this. But like you mentioned, efficiencies, you've got pad drilling, basically, instead of having to deconstruct a uh, drilling rig every time you want to drill a new well, which takes time and money, uh, they, they have what they call pad drilling, which is basically putting the rig uh, on on basically the, the kind of like if you imagine a bulldozer with tractor wheels, uh, you can, uh, and, and, the, tar- and the, the track is, I guess, what they call it. You can move these drilling rigs around without having to deconstruct it and then rebuild it. And so you're drilling these wells much faster within a certain parameter of land, and it's making it easier, cheaper. And uh, multi-stage fracking, which is basically just extending that line out underground and using multiple canisters, draw, like drawing the, the, wa- the line wire backwards, fracking further out, then fracking closer and closer and closer so that you just continue to hit more and more pockets mm-hmm. of oil. So. Definitely more efficient, and we've talked about people drilling for thirty to four, under thirty dollars a barrel, um, break-even cost. Yeah, that's that is nuts. like the <laughs> the best drillers in the in mm-hmm. the U.S. doing that. Um, so yes, hopefully that background was helpful to anybody who's yeah. been reading uh, <laughs> any transcripts of uh, conference calls and kind of doesn't understand what any of that stuff means. So yeah, it was very helpful. And for me. they use the seismic data to direction. They can directionally drill with like a joystick directly at where they need to be. So it's very very precise these days. Um, but EOG's former CEO came out recently saying that uh, he's a little nervous that these projections for shale are, are a little outlandish because of the declines in shale and because he thinks the prime acreage is, is all but taken. Um, some people say he's busy talking his own book because obviously if that's the case, oil mm-hmm. prices are likely to rise and he is the CEO of a small company that has prime acreage in the Permian now. So, um, only time will tell if that's correct or not, but the pace that we're on right now certainly doesn't hint that that is the case. Absolutely. Um, well, coming up, we're going to be talking about the stock that everybody seems to love to hate right now, <laughs> yeah. which is GE. Uh, and news of Hyundai is new electric contender. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that the British say Hyundai differently to how it's said here, which is Hyundai, right? Hyundai, yeah. yeah. I think I've heard it both ways. I didn't um, know it was a, a regional thing. Well, I just <laughs> think it's people like, how the, okay. heck, how the heck do you pronounce that name? Well, we need to get some company spokesman <laughs> to come right. and set us both right. Um, but first, I want to thank our sponsor for today's show. Uh, support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com forward slash fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. So just to recap the um, tragedy that has been GE. Yes, uh, that's a good word for it. (laughs) Uh, The stock has fallen 50% since last June. It's now trading at its lowest levels for seven years. and it seems like the bad news 
just doesn't stop coming. Right. Most recently, they filed a full disclosure which recognizes the impact of their new accounting standards. For background on this, they uh, there was an SEC investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's con- It's been known for many years that they do not have the most transparent accounting. <laughs> if you look at their free cash flow, for instance, right. free under Bornstein, uh, their, their former C- uh, CFO, it's not done the same way <laughs> as any other industrial company. Um, so they've implemented these new accounting standards or revenue recognition roles uh, to try and become more transparent, more accessible for investors. Um, so they've recognized this and they've also recognized the effects of tax reform. They're revising back to 2016, um, which under the new rules results in a non-cash charge uh, retained earnings of $4.2 billion. They also lowered EPS earnings per share sorry, for both 2016 and 2017 by $0.13 cents and $0.16 cents respectively. Mm-hmm. So now the issue here is that this represented, this was kind of misrepresented by a lot of financial journalists and even some analysts, uh, that it was a correction of a misstatement. Yeah, and that's not the case. No, no. That's, th- that's absolutely not the case. The company is trying to become more and more transparent. I, as a shareholder, really appreciate that. Yeah, it's um, tough with a company this big. It is. It's, yeah. uh, yes. So diverse. Maybe not the size, but the diversity mm-hmm. is definitely uh, kind of a, a hurdle to get over. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got kind of the G capital is just really the uh, mm. the devil on the on the back. Yeah, right it's that thorn in your boot. You just yep. can't get out. Um, and then you've got power, which is underperforming, uh, but aviation and healthcare, which are doing really well. So it's kind of this mixed bag and they're trying to pass it all out uh, for people. And then to top it all off, their CFO, Jamie Miller, said uh, of earnings estimates, I think that you should expect is at the low end of guidance. Mm. So. Ah, Wall Street did not like that. Yeah, no, uh, <laughs> bad news continues. But if you if you think about the way that they report things, maybe they're trying to address that moving forward with a new board member that they're bringing on, uh, Leslie, Leslie Seidman, the former chairman of the Financial Accounting Standards Board. So maybe there will be a little bit more oversight into uh, how they're going to re- represent their numbers moving forward and, and a couple other board, new board members that I think are going to bring a lot of uh, – diversity and and experience Mm -hmm. to the board and they're shrinking it from 18 to 12 which is still a pretty big board it is a big board i personally really like the shake-up yeah for sure i think the one thing that this whole uh ordeal for g shareholders Mm -hmm. has revealed is um the mismanagement essentially of the company and it's easy for people to say that as commentators but i would say objectively there has been mismanagement uh so i like the fresh faces on the board Mm -hmm. um from my perspective this is almost over transparency. Yeah. Uh, however, um, you know, if you're going to air your dirty laundry, you might as well get it all done in a six month period. Yeah, so. spring cleaning. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm praying that it's over. But um, uh, one other one, Thomas Horton, former chairman and CEO of American Airlines. So some mm-hmm. good insight into one of their largest customers. sector oh, yeah. customers. Yeah, like the airline industry. So yeah. uh, that and uh, the former CEO of, of Danaher, which is a competitor of mm-hmm. uh, of GE and several lineups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very smart moves. Um, so fourth quarter earnings, weaker than expected, uh, as we mentioned, due to power unit. Um, they didn't re-revise those estimates mm-hmm. before they released earnings, which I think a lot of analysts were perturbed by. Yeah. Um, the reason that they gave was that they thought the strength of aviation and healthcare would offset. Um, and that's kind of the <laughs> the ongoing story. Yeah. Um, Siemens also released uh, earnings, and they ha- they performed slightly better. They were showing a bit of uh, more strengthening in pricing. Mm-hmm. Services uh, taking a bit of an uptick, which is something that we haven't seen in that segment before. Yep. It's, it's over-subscribed, uh, uh, for yeah. want of a better word. Um, so possibly there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, <laughs> and speaking of Siemens, I saw an announcement today that GE is going to be getting into the ba- the, the battery storage game mm-hmm. uh, w- for solar and wind. So maybe yes. that'll help out a little bit. 
well, we, I feel that's very <laughs> sensible. <laughs> um, so kind of just stuff to watch out for if you're uh, if you're interested in the stock. Yep. Um, so we've had asset sales promised by the CEO. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new CEO, John Flannery, um, improvement in operating performance with regard to cost-cutting measures. Yep. And we're starting to see that somewhat already. I mean, cutting the board. Presumably, you know, these people, the new people, uh, will not be cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just cutting boards, cutting exec level, um, there's been a lot of layoffs. Obviously, awful for people impacted. But yeah. um, in the next two years or so, you're going to start to see that have an effect on the bottom line. Um, and the storm cloud, the ever-growing storm cloud of the pension yeah. uh, shortfall is... Uh, narrowing from uh, 67% funded to 71% funded now. And they say that rising interest rates will only help to close that gap. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I wish I could remember this. I saw something somewhere and it was saying like a 0.1% rise in interest rates Yeah, would almost pay off. It's supremely <laughs> levered to yes, uh, even the, the most micro increase mm-hmm. in, in interest rates for sure. Yes. Yeah, so one good thing to look yeah. out for in rising <laughs> interest rates. Uh, so they were also looking for a margin recovery. We just discussed GE Power. A lot of that will come from the services side, which is the high margin aspect of the business. Mm-hmm. They almost give away the turbines yeah, that's right. <laughs> having worked in the industry. Um, they also want a trouble fee resolution of SEC investigation. The transparent um, the revisions that they've made and the new board member suggest to me that that should be within yeah, sight. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, yeah, we just we're hoping <laughs> we're hoping this is uh, it who knows um so the next thing i wanted to talk to you about was uh hyundai's new suv so the korean auto manufacturer has created what our senior auto specialist john rosevere describes as a potentially world beating new product an wow. all-electric small suv with nearly 300 miles of range hmm. uh, so they're calling it the kona electric crossover suv uh it's clear that this could provide some real competition to the current kind of front runner General Motors Chevy Bolt. Uh, so the Bolt is currently America's best-selling electric vehicle. It sold more than all of Tesla's models, I believe. Yeah. Um, so the big point of interest essentially is the uh, range available. We don't know if, that, if that's going to be kind of a long-range version, version and then there'll be a uh, shorter-range version. Uh, but 300 miles is very good. Yes, for um, sure. And what I kind of wanted to get your opinion on as, as somebody else in the follows the industry is, mm-hmm. you know, Elon Musk trumpeted from the beginning that this was all part of his plan. He wanted to encourage traditional automakers to take electric seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess this is an indication that that's happening. What do you make to this? Yeah, it certainly is. And they went straight at Elon with a couple of billboards that they've placed uh, around, I don't know exactly where, but I assume it's more, more in Elon Musk's neighborhood with uh, kind of the lineup of the Hyundai cars and it just says, your turn, Elon. And uh, <laughs> interesting because, I mean, He's already the first mover in mm-hmm. this category for the most part in terms of uh, broad scale uh, electric vehicle sales. So he, he was the first to make the move. Maybe they're, it should have said uh, your second turn or mm-hmm. your third turn, Elon. But um, it, it's geared towards uh, the mass market, which maybe the Model 3 is for, for Tesla. But still, um, it's not really kind of stepping on his toes in terms of their SUV because the Model Y is definitely geared more towards the luxury market and um, more of a status symbol than anything else. But great to see uh, more cars coming out with this electric capability. And yeah, 300 miles is is impressive Mm -hmm. and uh, getting ahead of a lot of other companies for Hyundai. So definitely good to see. But um, I don't necessarily think this is 
a shot over Tesla's bow just because I think they're attracting different markets. Absolutely. Um, the one thing that I do think is interesting is it's not a zero-sum game because the more people who want to buy electric vehicles, the more people are going to be um, incentivized to establish the infrastructure necessary yep. uh, for electric vehicles. Right now, that's probably the biggest prohibitor. Um, for anything long range, that right. would be. Uh, so yeah, it's all it's all kind of very interesting. We're not sure if it's going to be available in the U.S. I presume that some model, some version, will mm -hmm. be available in the U.S. Uh, but yes, absolutely, it's an indication that um, the the master plan is taking effect. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's interesting that electric is being chosen. You know, you had all of these uh, alternative energy sources touted when all of this was going off. You had yep. like the fusion technology, um, hydrogen fuel cells. Compressed um, natural gas, liquefied natural gas. Exactly. Yeah. And electric seems to be the choice. Yeah. Uh, choice de jour. So it sure does. And they're, they're not just attacking like people buying new cars. They're, their addressable market is everyone that has a car because as your car gets older and you retire it or maybe you want a new one, it makes sense to at least consider electric vehicles the competition there is so much smaller than all petrochemical vehicles that I, I don't think that new entrance is really as big of a threat to even other players in this market as some people make it out to be because you're addressing uh, it's just a, a smaller smaller pool of com of competitors versus every mm -hmm. like thousands thousands of petro cars versus a handful of electric vehicles mm -hmm. so I, I think there's a much bigger opportunity there than people are giving um, everyone credit for, not just Tesla. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, this kind of plays into our previous discussion about GE's latest investment. You know, I think a lot of people don't understand that an uh, electric vehicle has a huge battery on it. Yes. And this is kind of a huge cell made of lots of conventional batteries, mm -hmm. essentially. Uh, so any investment that you're seeing right now in kind of that area is is already sold up. You know, yep. it's already been bought up. Um, but it's sensible. <laughs> And if you if you know anything about batteries, is they die. Yes. So there's going to be a replacement <laughs> cycle on that as well, not just the car itself. Um, and Tesla, far ahead of the game with their Gigafactory mm -hmm. in terms of lithium battery production. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show uh, and Absolutely. talking about all these different <laughs> things with me. We hope that uh, the listeners enjoyed it. Um, it's it from us today, but if you would like to get in touch, please feel free to email us at industryfocus.com or tweet us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based only on what you hear. Thank you to Steve for mixing the show today. And for Taylor, I'm Sarah Priestley. Thanks for listening and full on. Mm -hmm.